This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we are thankful that we have your word. We are told in Scripture that it is the means by which God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart, matures us as believers, that we are to desire it, hunger for it, just as a newborn baby cries and screams to be fed. And Father, we pray that we would have that desire in us to know your word so that we can know you, to know your word so that we can serve you better to know your word so that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, there are so many, many things that are taught in your word, and we need to understand the whole counsel of God and how it applies to every area of life, every area of thought. There is no area of life or intellectual life that is not touched by sin, corrupted by sin, And so every single thing that we think about must come under the authority of your word. We must come to understand how it applies to everything. And now, Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians, where we learn so much about who we are as believers, what you have provided for us, and how you uh, equip us and prepare us and train us to serve you, we pray that in our study we'll come to a better understanding of your word and these spiritual gifts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This morning, we need to have a little review. We looked the last time on the fact that there are some spiritual gifts, including apostle and prophet, that are temporary gifts. And the central passage for that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, verses 8 through 13. Last time, we did not, I did not complete the study of that. The one part of it that I briefly touched on at the end because of, uh, we were running out of time was the purpose for these sign gifts. What was especially, what was the purpose of the gift of languages, which is often referred to as the gift of tongues? And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14 on this. But before we do this, we need a little bit of review. 
We need that review because it was five weeks ago that we studied that, and most of you have probably forgotten. However, if you listened to Dr. Andy Woods on uh, Wednesday, he covered just exactly the same thing that I covered five weeks ago. And so we're just going to hit some of the high points, bring out a couple of things that uh, I couldn't remember whether I pointed out last time or not, so that what we say about the purpose for tongues is not lost. So in 1 Corinthians 13.8, we read in the <clears throat> New King James Version, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, I have uh, the basic New King James Version translation up there in black, and then I have the uh, some comments and the Greek words in blue. reason I do that is because there's a tendency of translators to, instead of following what the original language says, to translate it and then translate it according to certain style conventions of good writing in English. And one of those style conventions of good writing in English is that you don't repeat the same words over and over again, but God the Holy Spirit does. So I guess that means that English style conventions are incorrect according to the thinking of God. So what we have here is it begins with a contrast, but so he's contrasting these three gifts, prophecy, knowledge, and the gift of languages, with love. He will come back to love at the end of the chapter. But he has to address that the fact that there are some problems with these particular gifts. And the, then he says, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. And the Greek word is katargeo. Second, he says, whether there are tongues, they will cease. And this is the word pow. This is a different word. And it's in the middle voice, which indicates that it's going to just die out on its own. It just has a temporary purpose, which we'll look at. And then when that purpose is accomplished, it's going to vanish. And then he, the New King James and other translators, translations also sometimes translate the third line with a different word. New King James says, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But it's the same word that is used in the first line. They will fail. Now, it's important that those be translated the same. Otherwise, you miss how the writer is tying certain things together by the words that he uses. So we looked at that last time, and we saw that this word katargeo has the idea of something that is abolished, something wiped out, something set aside. So I'm choosing to translate both of them with the word set aside. So we should understand whether there are prophecies, they will be set aside. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will be set aside. Now, one thing that we see is that prophecy and knowledge have something in common. They are revelatory gifts. And there are other revelatory gifts, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, that are not mentioned here. In fact, a lot of people today really don't know what they mean. That's the only time they're mentioned, so a lot of people just take a guess at what they mean. And in the charismatic movement, they take a guess, but they're way out in way out of bounds in their guesswork. But so we see here that 
Scripture is clearly saying, God is clearly revealing that there will come a time when the spiritual gift of prophecy and the spiritual gift of knowledge will be abolished. It will be eradicated. It will no longer be in effect. They serve a temporary purpose, in other words. Tongues is going to be a little different. There's a time when those the first one and the third one will be set aside, but tongues is just going to cease. This is the word um, powo, and I've translated that. Whether there are tongues, they will end. They'll just die out on their own. There is something significant about the cessation of the revelatory gifts, and it's very important in the interpretation of this passage. Now, these two revelatory gifts are then expanded on in verse nine, verses 9 and 10. They are, in addition to saying that they're both going to be abolished, we're told we know in part. That's the Greek phrase ek merus, and it means in part or partially. And so knowledge is partial, Prophecy is partial. What that means is that uh, in terms of God's revelation through the New Testament, and these are New Testament prophets and apostles, that they were given incomplete information. Paul had part of it. Peter had part of it. John had part of it. Luke had part of it. But none of them had the whole uh, picture, had the entire revelation. And so it's not until it's all given that it's all put together and complete. This phrase, ekmerus, is not talking about uh, quality. It's talking about quantity. Partial, incomplete, has to do with a qual- uh, quantitative concept, not a qualitative concept. So when we come to verse 10, and it says, but when the perfect comes the partial shall be done away with. That that word tatelion can mean maturity, but it also, but that doesn't really fit the concept of quantity here. Maturity is more of a quality idea, and this is a quantity idea. That's the contrast. You want to contrast similar things and not things that are, uh, uh, totally different. So when the word translated the perfect can be translated as mature as it's used in a number of passages, but since it's being used in a context talking about quantity, then it should be translated when the complete comes. Uh, then the partial will be done away. I think that opens that verse up a lot more so that we can uh, understand it. Now, there's another thing about verse 10. There is a textual variant in here. Um, in verse 10, in the New King James and in the King James Version, which is based, they are based on what is known as the Textus Receptus or the Received Text. Received Text was put together as a critical text by Erasmus in the early uh, 16th century. But he didn't have a, 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 
but uh, just a few manuscripts to work with. Uh, he at different times he had less than more. So it's around eight to ten Greek manuscripts were really late late manuscripts and not of the best quality compared to what we have today. Quality is not determined by age; it's determined by other factors. So in the new in the majority text. It says, but when the perfect comes, then the partial will be set aside. And that's, I think, important because of the fact that that you have this same word tote show up two more times in this context. And so I tend to think that it it um, this is what was used in the original. I am inclined to the majority text most of the time. So what we learn here is that these gifts, knowledge and prophecy, that they give incomplete data. When you just had the Old Testament, after Jesus had come, you have incomplete revelation. When you have only a couple of Paul's epistles and maybe the Gospel of Matthew and maybe James, you have incomplete information. It's not until you get all of the 27 books of the New Testament that we have what God determines is a sufficient uh, amount of information so that we can face and handle all of the various issues uh, in life. So we translate this, we know partially, and we prophesy partially, or we could translate it, we know incompletely, and we prophesy incompletely, but when the complete comes, then the incomplete will be set aside. So that way we're using the same words and the same word group in order to present the idea uh, a little more clearly. I may not make the best English, but that's that's keeps us where we're always translating the same concepts within the same kind. Following that, Paul's going to give us two analogies. First, he's going to use a growth analogy, uh, uh, comparing or contrasting a child's behavior and an adult's behavior. And then in verse 12, he's going to use a mirror analogy. In verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. A child has incomplete knowledge. A child is learning. They need to be educated. And he says, when I became a man and I had accumulated the knowledge necessary to function as a mature adult, I set aside childish things. So this illustrates the difference between incomplete knowledge to complete knowledge. The second example in verse 12 is an example related to prophecy. Now you may look at that and say, well, how does that relate to prophecy? Well, I'll show you. Now he, in this verse, he also introduces the now-then contrast. And this is very important to understand what is going on here because he talk, he uses one word for now in this verse and he will use a different word for now in the next verse, something you, we miss in English. He says, for now, using the Greek word arti, we see in a mirror. 
Now, the mirrors they had at this time were polished metal, mostly polished polished brass. And so you may not get a distinct image in the reflection. Now, the old King James, the authorized version, said we see through a glass darkly. Well, that's a poor translation because in a mirror you don't see through it. You see your reflection. And so it misses the point. We're not looking through glass that is uh, darkened and shady and gives a, and we can't really see what's on the other side. It is a mirror, a mirror that reflects us. There is a phrase called the perspicacity of Scripture, a word. I, I just love that phrase. It is used mostly by theologians to indicate that the Word of God is perspicuous. That means that the Word of God is very clear and precise in showing who we are. We look at the mirror of the Word of God, James calls it, and there are some that look in the mirror of the Word of God and they go away and forget what they saw. Now, most of you looked in the mirror this morning and you realized that your hair was a little spiky and you had some bed head. And uh, some of you noticed that, uh, that you may have had uh, some other blemishes showing and you put on some makeup and whatever it was, but you paid attention to what the mirror told you and you made some corrections so you wouldn't embarrass yourself when you went out in public. But there are some people who forget and they just look at the mirror and then they get busy doing something else. And next thing they know, they're out in the public and they look in the mirror and they go, oh, I didn't comb my hair. Why didn't somebody tell me? So that's the analogy. The word of God is compared to a mirror. It reflects to us who we are and what our problems are and what the issues are in life. And we hold to a a doctrine, a teaching of Scripture called the sufficiency of Scripture. There, the primary doctrine is that the Word of God is breathed out by God. It is inspired, not in the way that we think of Shakespeare as being inspired or we think of Wordsworth as being inspired or we may think of Michelangelo as being inspired. But the word in the Greek is theopneustos, which means that God breathed it out. It originates with God. He breathes it into the thinking and the soul of the writer of Scripture, and then they exhale it. So it is that all Scripture is God-breathed. It originates with God, and therefore it is without error. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the Word of God. A corollary to that is because it is the Word of God, it is sufficient, that is, it is enough. He tells us everything we need to know in order to face whatever issues there are in our lives. And it is the knowledge that he gives us that enables us to properly interpret what goes on in our life. He doesn't tell us everything there is to know about all of these things, but he tells us that indispensable information that is necessary to properly interpret things. For example, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that you can eat from all the fruit of the, all the trees in the garden except this one, that if you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
instantly there will be a spiritual death. Now, they didn't quite understand what death was because they had never seen that or experienced that, but they knew this was going to be something bad. But they couldn't have learned that through empiricism, that is, through observation of the different fruits and different trees in the garden. They could come to many, many conclusions and make many, many accurate observations about the trees in the garden, but there was one indispensable fact that would shape how they looked at everything else. That's what the Word of God does. It's sufficient. It gives us that information that is necessary to accurately interpret other things. We can interpret a lot of things accurately and some things not accurately, but a tree to an evolutionist is not the same tree that presents to someone who believes God created and designed it. At some point, they are different trees. One is an accident. One is carefully designed and created by God. So when it comes to our spiritual life, we need a mirror that is all there, not a mirror that's been cracked and parts of the glass that reflects are not there. So we see through a mirror dimly. That mirror refers to an incomplete canon. But then, that is, then when the canon is complete, when that which completes is fully there, okay, we see face-to-face. And that face-to-face we often have been taught is face-to-face with God, but it's face-to-face with Scripture. As I pointed out last time, there's basically two two interpretations of, uh, of when this happens. One is, one takes the then as referring to being face-to-face with the Lord, either as a result of physical death, as a result of the rapture, uh, being in, taken to heaven, whatever it may be, the second coming, whatever it may be, it has to do with that event. But that, there's a problem with that. And that is one that we'll see when we get to the, we'll see the solution when we get to the last verse. The other is that the perfect relates to either the canon or maturity. And so, uh, it must be the canon view because that's what fits the incomplete, complete analogy. So face to face here can't be face to face with God, face to face with Christ at death, rapture, second coming, whatever or the eschaton, as nebulous theologians want to put it. It is face-to-face with the Scripture, that face-to-face with that completed mirror of the canon. And so he says, but then, that is, when the canon comes face-to-face, now I know in part, I know partially, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, that doesn't mean you have, uh, you're omniscient. We're never omniscient. It means that then we will have a complete picture of who we are and what needs what God provides for us. The now RT is important. But it says here we see, um, we know, it, uh, it uses the phrase face to face. We see in a mirror dimly. Now this really, this language of face to face and dimly goes back to what God said to Moses in Numbers 12, 6 through 8. 8's the key verse, but I want to give you the context. God is speaking. 
He says, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, speaking to Israel, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. See, Moses was distinctive as a prophet. He goes on to say, with him I speak mouth to mouth. Now, that's just a variant of the metaphor face to face. I speak mouth to mouth even openly, and look at what it says, not in dark sayings. In the Septuagint, dark sayings trans is translated with the Greek word enigma, something that is a puzzle, something that isn't clear, something that uh, is incomplete. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see ourselves in a mirror dimly, and that word for dimly is that same word, enigma. An incomplete canon doesn't give us all we need to be sufficient. It is an enigma. And then face to face. So it's talking about that same idea. So it's talking about prophecy. So what I've said is the, the analogy of a child to adult is related to knowledge and that the uh, analogy with the mirror is related to prophecy. That's what the context of the Old Testament supports. And then he concludes, but now, notice he uses a different word for now. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And about... 28 years ago, 29 years ago, I was reading through, uh, doing some study on this, and I came across an article on Nuni in Kittle. Kittle is the theological dictionary of the New Testament, and you always have to be careful with Kittle. Number one, Gerhard Kittle was a noted German Old Testament scholar, Hebrew scholar, but he was also a, a card-carrying Nazi and a full-fledged anti-Semite. When, when Jeff Bromley, the American theologian, translated it, he got rid of all the anti-Semitisms and other things. He sanitized Kittle. But these scholars who write these articles are mostly liberal. They say good and correct things at times, but you have to double-check and validate. Anything you find that's good, you better support it, validate it, and confirm it in other places. And the statement is made that when you have these two words, RT and Nuni, both of which mean now, in the same context, that there is a difference in their meaning, much as when you look at the um, uh, John 20 John 21, when Jesus is talking to, with Peter and he uses uh, different words for love and Peter uses different words for love, a lot of scholars today want to say, oh, that's just stylistic difference. I think that is an incipient rejection of inerrancy. Every word is breathed out by God. There is a distinction. And um, so here he says, but now abide faith, hope, and love. Does that now refer to the same now as the RT? The RT is a broad concept. The problem is that in these views of that, that the now is until the second coming or rapture or death or whenever we're face-to-face with the Lord, we learn from 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. 
But you see what happens when we die, we're face to face with the Lord. We're no longer walking by faith, we're walking by sight. So faith is for this life, not the next life, not when we're face to face with Jesus. We're not walking um, by by, uh, faith when we're in heaven. Hope is the second virtue mentioned there. Is hope something that is part of our life in heaven, face to face with the Lord? Not at all. Romans 8.24 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? In other words, when you have these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, faith is only in this life, hope is only in this life, but love is what continues into eternity. That is the Different. So now in this life, abide faith, hope, and love. Faith, Nuni, is a broader concept. RT is talking about now we see incomplete. RT means like right now, it's a narrow concept. And Nuni is a broader concept. So what, in essence, what Paul is saying is that now we see through a mirror enigmatically. Now in this pre-canon period, until the canon is complete, until all 27 books are given, uh, we have an incomplete, insufficient canon. But then, face-to-face, when there's a completed canon, when there is a sufficient canon, we will be known even as we are known. All right. So what's the purpose for tongues then. That clearly tells us about knowledge and about prophecy. They're both partial and they're going to be replaced by something that completes them. That's the perfect, the canon, okay? What about tongues? What do we know about the purpose of tongues? Well, we need to go to the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 22. I included verse 20 because it picks up that same word teleos that is translated complete back in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. But here it is used in a slightly different context, so it has that idea of maturity. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And it could be be complete because if it's referring to back to the completed canon. And then he refers to tongues, the gift of languages is really what that, what that means. To refer to a language as a tongue is in English is an antiquated use of the word, but it hangs on in, in theology. So he's going to quote from the law. And when he says in the law it is written, he's using the word law or, or Hebrew would be Torah to refer to all of the Old Testament canon here because the quotation doesn't come out of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, the Torah. It comes out of the Nevi'im, the prophets. It comes out of Isaiah. He says, in the law it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. See, the purpose in the revelation of tongues isn't to communicate something they will respond to. 
Now, that's really important because a lot of people think, oh, when you talk about tongues here as a sign, what they're, what they're doing, they're giving the gospel in another language. But the purpose of tongues isn't to give the gospel to people so they'll be saved. The purpose of, God, of the gift of tongues is to confirm or announce judgment on them. They will not hear. They're not going to respond. Therefore, and then I put the the in there because in the Greek you have an article. And that's important because what Paul is talking about is this specific issue of this spiritual gift. That's what, why he puts the article there. Therefore, uh, the tongues are for a sign. Languages are for a sign. These specific languages, this specific spiritual gift is for a sign, not all foreign languages. This specific spiritual gift is for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, let's look at um, Isaiah 28, 11. Now, one point I want to make before we go on is that in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, God announces this covenant, gives a preview of the covenant he's going to give to Abraham. As part of that covenant, or the reason for that covenant, he's setting aside the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for a specific purpose in history. Part of that purpose is it is now going to be through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God is going to give his revelation. So they're going to be the vehicles through which God is going to give his revelation, and they're going to be the custodians of his revelation. Now, as far as I'm concerned, every book of the Bible is written by someone Jewish. Now, some people debate Job, but I think a strong case has been made that Moses wrote Job, but the events in Job's life were predated Moses. They go back to, to uh, Abraham. Um, others think that maybe Luke, who wrote the, Luke the physician, was a Gentile. And most, a lot of scholars I've consulted, Luke was a, was a Jew just as Paul was and others. God was restricting his work through the Jewish people. So I believe all the books of the Bible were written, were written by, by Jews. And so they are the conduits of God's revelation. Now what happens is there's a warning in Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 11, For the, with stammering lips and another language will he speak to the, the people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Okay, well, that's, that's important. Again, it's confirming the fact that they won't hear. They're not going to hear. It, it, it really seems that it's being put there as a confirmation of their rejection, as a confirmation of their rejection of God. Let's look at the context. This is a passage of condemnation in these, in these verses. It is a passage of condemnation of Israel for the false priests and false prophet. And in verse 7, God says, These also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priests and prophets were alcoholics. They were drunks. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. That doesn't mean scotch or vodka. That means barley beer. They weren't distilling beverages back then, so the strong drink was a strong ale or barley beer. 
They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter with rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. It's a graphic, disgusting image of these false priests and false prophets. Then you have 9 and 10. 10, this whole passage, 10 especially, is a passage that is one of those that's horribly taken out of context. We even have a ministry today uh, called Precept on Precept, taken from this verse. And I've heard pastors talk about this verse as if this is a positive thing. But the speakers here are the probably the false priests and prophets mentioned in verses 7 and 8. They're angry because Isaiah is treating them like young children and telling them what they should do so they are excuse me, mimicking Isaiah as if he were spe- speaking baby talk to them. And so really, you, you could translate this into English, according to one commentator, as do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule. And because of the way the sounds are, it's rather onomatopoeic in the Hebrew. It is kav l'kav, kav l'kav, tzav l'tzav, tzav l'tzav. It's, it's making fun of it like it's a nursery rhyme, okay? So this isn't a positive thing. They're just they're making fun of Isaiah. All you ever say is that kind of a thing. So he responds by saying, indeed, God will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign language. You, you, you're making fun of me now, but guess what? that God's going to judge you and you're going to hear the word of God not in Hebrew. You're so proud of the fact that God reveals himself in Hebrew, but you're going to hear it in a foreign language and you won't understand it. But it's a sign of judgment. This was prophesied by, Mo- by Moses in Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down. A nation, what? Whose language you don't understand. See, speaking in tongues wasn't a way to give them the gospel because they wouldn't understand it. But what they were hearing was the word of God being proclaimed in a language they couldn't understand. God was taking it away from them because they had rejected it. It is a picture of judgment. So Paul goes back to this passage and he says, the purpose of tongues is for a sign, to those, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment. It's announcing judgment. It is letting a Jew know when you hear the word of God in a Gentile language, judgment is coming. In a well-known older commentary by Robertson and Plummer on 1 Corinthians, they write, tongues have a further use as a sign sign to unbelievers, not a convincing saving sign, but a judicial sign. Just as the disobedient Jews who refused to listen to the clear and intelligible message which God frequently sent to them through his prophets were chastised, by being made to listen to the unintelligible language of a foreign invader. 
So those who now fail to believe the gospel are chastised by hearing a wonderful sound which they cannot understand. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying there. It's the, the Jews were in all of these audiences, and they were hearing the gospel and the word of God being taught in Greek or in Latin, and that was, was to them a sign of judgment. Zane Hodges, who was uh, noted for uh, free grace theologies, also was noted as uh, for many of us of a certain age, he was our first-year Greek professor. And he wrote an article in the early 60s, the use of the definite article with the Greek word for tongues does not appear, it does, it's not translated in the authorized version of this verse, but it must not be overlooked. Inasmuch as the article gives to the word glossi a pointed specificity, it further confirms that Paul finds this particular phenomenon to be the thing referred to by the scripture he cited. It is not simply tongues or languages in general to which Isaiah of old refers, but the tongues of which the apostle has been speaking throughout. Therefore, this language, these tongues, are for a sign, going back to Deuteronomy 28 and Isaiah. It goes on to say the Greek adjective construction to the unbeliever, tois apistois, the A alpha there is the negative, to the unbeliever rendered by the a, a authorized version, them that believe not, here is not distinguished by the English version from the preceding participial, participial construction, them that believe. In other words, by translating it, they lose, it loses the force of the original. And the whole idea here is a, a challenge that he says the fact that either, uh, either two participial constructions or two adjectival ones could have been used if precise, exact opposition of the two expressions were intended points to the conclusion that a certain shade of difference existed in the apostle's mind. The adjective apistos under these circumstances would, in contrast to a participial form, express pure description as over against the action of believing. So basically what he's saying is he's just describing them as unbelievers. The conclusion of this is that the perp- because the purpose of tongues was to be assigned to unbelieving Jews that judgment was coming, it gives us a major clue as to when tongues would cease. When did the judgment come? A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the temple, it was then that, that the nation is scattered, the judgment is coming. The, the gift of languages, hearing the word of God in Gentile languages, was a warning, a sign that because they had rejected God, God was going to judge them. So once that judgment came in A.D. 70, there was no longer a purpose for tongues. It died out. It ceased. That was the end of it. So what we have, the reason I've gone to that is because in Ephesians 4, when it talks to us about these gifts of apostles and prophets, we learned that those first two were foundational gifts as described in Ephesians 2.20 and that they are referring to gifts that were temporary, that not all gifts were designed to 
continue through the entire church age. But there were certain gifts, revelatory gifts, sign gifts like tongues that were given only in that early, early period of the church age. So we'll come back next time and we will look at what it means to be an evangelist and what the purpose of the evangelist is. Some of you have been around and heard me before, but the purpose for the evangelist is I did not find one commentary who got it right. They failed to look at the context here. We'll find out next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to see how it integrates Old Testament with New Testament, how there's just a seamless connection between the two. Understanding that you have a plan for Israel, it brought, that because they rejected the Messiah, they're now under discipline, but there will be a restoration of Israel in the future, according to Deuteronomy 31 through 3 and numerous other passages. And Father, we understand that these gifts that are debated today and so controversial, that Scripture is very clear, and we just have to study it to understand it. But that these spiritual gifts mentioned by Paul in Ephesians 4 are designed to bring, to equip the church, to bring the church to maturity, and they are given to the body of Christ for our edification and equipping. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message who's never trusted Christ as Savior, who's unsure of their eternal destiny, that if they were to die tomorrow, die this afternoon, they're not sure what would happen. They need to hear that the Word of God is very clear, that at the instant of physical death, those who have believed in Christ are not condemned but they will instantly be face-to-face with Christ in heaven. But those who have rejected the gospel, do not believe in Christ, are condemned already, and their eternity will be quite different as they are sent uh, first to a place of torments and then the lake of fire after the coming great white throne judgment. And this is a horrible condemnation. And God does not desire that anyone... uh, be punished eternally. He desires for all to be saved, but it's up to you to believe. Those who believe are not condemned. Those who believe are condemned already, as John 3.18 says. And that's the issue. It's belief, faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for our salvation. We thank you for all that we've done, you've done, provided. And Father, once again, we pray for Ukraine. We pray for our friends. We pray that you would uh, spoil the aims of the Russian army. We have seen so many examples of breakdowns of calamity. We pray that you would bring upon them the defeat of Sisera, as you did in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And we pray that the Ukrainian people may be victorious and that out of this victory there will be a great revival among the Ukrainian people as so many are learning about the truth of Jesus Christ in the midst of this horrible war. And that is the ultimate, ultimate reality for their salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.